This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hello, Chris. Good to talk again. Um, lots to discuss today, as usual. Um, we saw a lot happening on the interest rate front since our last podcast. So I think it's worth um, going over that and telling us, see what it's telling us about the future for interest rates and indeed about the economy. We had an incredibly strong U.S. jobs report last Friday. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, there's certainly a sense out there that globally things are looking a little bit better than they were two or three months ago. Um, what does that mean for interest rates? Uh, you want to, and you've been anxious to talk about this for quite some time, we may get around to today the chat GPT and, and what's happening on that front because Google and Microsoft are now entering the arena quite aggressively. Um, I want to mention the Irish Exchequer returns for January. I know it's a little bit dated in the sense that it was published last week, but we didn't get to talk about it. And it is continuing to tell us some interesting things about what's happening on the tax front here in Ireland. And uh, finally, um, there's two, um, I guess, speeches we want to look at. One was Biden's State of the Union address last night and the antics at that. And secondly, Zelensky is addressing the House of Parliament in the UK today. You have been listening to that. If we start on the interest rate front, 
Um, last week, we saw the US Federal Reserve increase rates by a quarter of 1%. And that is taking the target range for the federal funds rate now from to a range of four and a half to four and three quarters percent. Okay. And Jay Powell has suggested there is more to come. And in a speech this more today, he was saying that rates may rise further than the markets had anticipated. Uh, the Bank of England last week implemented its 10th consecutive interest rate increase. And the base rate is now at a 15-year high of 4%. There was certainly a suggestion from the Bank of England that the rate cycle there is close to peaking. Uh, the European Central Bank last Thursday increased rates by a half percent, taking um, one of its key refinancing rates up to 3%. That's the rate that actually determines mortgage rates and indeed tracker mortgage rates particularly. Um, but the ECB has said that it intends to increase rates by another half percent in March. So that would see the refinancing rate at three and a half percent and that they would evaluate the subsequent path of interest rates after that. So a lot happening on the interest rate front. They've come a long way over the last 12 months. Um, a suggestion in the United States and the United Kingdom that the end may be in sight, um, but a lot less clarity from the European Central Bank. And indeed, um, and this is somewhat surprising, I think, given you know that the Eurozone economy isn't exactly roaring ahead it's not exactly characterized by an economy where domestic demand is out of control, uh, but yet the European Central Bank seems intent on taking rates a lot higher. So how do you interpret all of those interest rate changes and more importantly, what they mean for the future? Well, it was really instructive to see what happened in financial markets afterwards. And in particular, after the very, very strong jobs report that we got uh, showing that half a million jobs in one month had been created in the United States. The dollar stopped, uh, dollar started going up again. And so that was really a big reversal in markets with lots of profound implications, actually, uh, not least for emerging markets. Emerging market equities and debt have been on a tear for a number of months now because they're inversely related to the dollar for all sorts of reasons, mostly because a lot of the debt is denominated in dollars. So when the dollar weakens, their debt burden goes down. And emerging market equities as well like that. They do like um, their bond yields going down, all markets like that. So all sorts of ripples throughout the financial markets. And you can see how febrile the US equity market itself, the big one, the big kahuna, the one equity market that really drives all others, particularly over the short term. It went down on the day that um, we got the very strong jobs report how, after having gone up when we thought that the Federal Reserve was close to being done. And then Jay Powell made a speech saying that maybe disinflation is still here, maybe not. And that was interpreted dovishly on one day. And as we speak, the US equity market is going down again. So I think the US equity market is behaving absolutely consistently with the other hand's forecasts for the equity market this year in which it's going up and down a lot, but not really doing very much. It's gone up a bit, but um, I think it's pretty trendless at the moment with lots of volatility. The ECB, I think, was completely daft to say that it was going to raise interest rates again by a half in the next meeting. I mean, what's that all about, Jim? I know there's forward guidance, but that wasn't forward guidance. That's actually telling people what you're going to do. 
And, They've been listening to me, Chris. And, and giving no room for manoeuvre. Because whatever happens now, they've got to raise rates next month. I mean, I yeah. suppose they could always declare force majeure. But if you've made that decision, it almost irrevocably to raise rates in a few weeks' time by another half percentage point, why not just do it on the day? I mean, for goodness sake, I, 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 I don't get it. I would have kept Sturm. I would have kept up the mantra, we're going to be data dependent. We'll have a look. We're not done yet. We don't think. But depending on events between now and the next meeting, economic data, as it comes in, will react accordingly. And that would at least have had the, vir- the virtues of authenticity um, and just being right. That's the, that's the right way to do it. So their communication still leaves an awful lot to be desired. Yeah, Chris, do you, do you think there's an element here that Christine Lagarde is not an economist? She doesn't really understand the world of economics and the financial markets because I, I couldn't actually see Philip Lane coming out and being that specific about an interest rate change in March. I thought it was an utterly bizarre thing to say. Um, I totally agree with you on that because it, it's now become a hostage to fortune in a sense. And if they don't deliver a half percent, um, you know, you could get a strong market reaction. Yeah, she, she's, she's put a foot in it several times. She's a very obviously intelligent, formidable woman. I think she's a lawyer by training. Yeah, but she clearly isn't steeped in financial markets by way of experience, and she—it's it's sometimes tough to understand for an outsider just how a word here or a word there can make all the difference to your messaging, and how important communication between the central bank and the marketplace is, and how that can be done right and how that can be done wrong. Greenspan, the former chairman of the Federal Reserve, was past master at saying an awful lot, coming up with an awful lot of words that nobody had the faintest idea what they meant, and that that was always his intention. So markets uh, didn't really react in the way that they sometimes do to Christine Lagarde's um, speeches. So I think that she is learning on the job in terms of the interaction with the marketplace, but because it's a real skill that's very, very difficult to acquire without really decades of financial market experience, not just economics, but also how central banking interacts with the financial world. Um, it is sometimes very mysterious and very difficult to understand. So uh, it's kind of to be expected that she wouldn't perhaps get it right every time. But this one, I think, was spectacularly silly. And she needs to perhaps, somebody has to have a word in, in her ear. I go back to the importance of words. Uh, the previous boss of the European Central Bank, Mario Draghi, when he said, I... I will do all that it takes, whatever it takes to save the Eurozone. Those words were enough because he didn't actually have to follow it up with much action. And so words are very, very important. Um, Perhaps they don't deserve to be. Perhaps some people might think it's silly that words can have such significance in market participants' minds. But the fact is they do. And and that's important. With with respect to to what's going on in the States and interest rates, I, I think... Economically speaking, we're, we're like it's like we're in a we're in a pinball machine whereby we we ratchet off one um, piece of data uh, like a ball going around the pinball table after another, in which we say great, we, we and then we say oh not so great, then we say oh blimey something else has happened over here. The Federal Reserve must be, I think, as confused as we are as to the state of the U.S. economy. And Mohammed El Arian, a, a very well respected economic commentator. Uh, has said that he thinks they should have gone a half, particularly once they saw that the um, 
non-farm payrolls were going to come in very strong. I don't know whether they'd have had advanced sight of that, but certainly with the benefit of hindsight, those non-farm payrolls, that, that jobs report um, suggests an economy that is much stronger than people previously thought. Yeah, Chris, um, you mentioned 517,000 jobs added in January, an unemployment rate of 3.4% of the labour force, which is virtually full employment. So that is suggestive of a very tight US labour market. And indeed, the last time I was in the States, uh, job vacancy signs up all over the place, particularly in hospitality and retail. Um, Last year, for 2022, um, you know, every month that we get revisions to the non-farm payrolls uh, when more data becomes available. But the revised figures show that for 2022 as a whole, the U.S. economy created 4.8 million jobs last year. Um, you know, that that is an incredible jobs performance. And um, I think Biden, despite his unpopularity, um, has to take some credit for that in terms of his management of the economy, because I can, I can assure you, um, Donald Trump did take credit for that sort of job performance as well and would indeed be taking credit for this if he were president. Uh, but it just strikes me that Biden can't do anything right at the moment. But we'll get back to that in a second in the context of the State of the Union last night. But looking at the US economic story, um, you know, is so, some people are pretty upbeat about the economy. Um, you have alluded um, in an earlier conversation uh, before we came on the pod to a number of private sector forecasters who are actually warning not to get carried away with the strength of the US economy, that if you look under the bonnet, that things are not quite as strong as they might appear from the non-farm payrolls. Yeah, there's there's a couple of uh, Wall Street investment banks, prominent names, saying that if you look under the hood uh, of the US economy, any impression that you get from that half million jobs in one month, over 4 million jobs in a year, that impression of strength is false, and that they think that there's an awful lot of weakness underneath the hood. Um, I'm not convinced that I buy that. I must admit to being confused as to why they're saying that. I know that the manufacturing sector is looking on the weak side, but that's the smaller part of the economy. The service sector, by far and away, the bulk of the US economy is still motoring along. And yeah, the that, the personal managed index is at fifty five point two, you know, which, which, is, which is incredibly strong. Which is in, which is consistent with decent growth in the overall yeah. economy. So uh, I'm a bit puzzled as to why they are saying that the underlying economy is weak. It could well be forecasters droop, <laughs> to coin a phrase in which they have been previously just caught out, like the rest of us, I suppose, by how strong the U.S. economy, particularly the job sector, has been. Because the job story, um, given the amount of growth that there is in the economy, the, the GDP level, um, this is a lot of jobs, isn't it? And so it's phenomenal. Yeah, um, it suggests that productivity isn't very good, which is which is a bit of a worry. One of the things that's going on that might affect investment banks, old-fashioned stockbrokers, as we used to call them, uh, impression of the economy is what's happening to company profits in the states. And and they, through the course of 2022, were were quite weak, actually. Uh, At the end of uh, 2021, in the final quarter of that year, so we're looking back about 15 months now, um, for the U.S. equity market, we we add all these things up and divide by the number of companies and all that sort of thing. But the 
earnings, the profits of companies were reported for the S&P 500, the most, one of the most important indices of the US stock market, was at $54 a share. And it looks like the corresponding quarter that's just ended in December of 2022, that that number has fallen from $54 a share to 43. And that's quite a profits recession, um, double digit percentage. Um, and that might be something that is informing their view that things are actually quite weak if profits are that weak. It, that, it could well be a very good indicator that things underneath the hood are weak. But it, it, it's quite possible that we'll have a profits recession without there being an economic one either, because we know why these profits are weak. It's because that costs are up. That's the inflation story. We know that tech, which isn't a huge part of the profit story, actually, but nevertheless, profits in tech companies have been on the weak side, certainly relative to expectations. So that's the pinball machine, Jim. Depends on who you talk to. Depends whether you know, you're know you hitting a a piece of data that says yippee, or whether you're hitting a piece of data that sends the ball back down to the back down to the escape alley, and and, and you have to start all over again. Um, it's ne- it's it's as confusing an economic picture that I've seen in a long time, actually. Yeah, I mean, if my memory serves me correctly, and I wouldn't bet on it, but as far as I remember, the S and P five hundred was down about seventeen percent last year, and I think that would be consistent with the sort of earnings deterioration that you know you have described there so the markets have pretty much priced it in and so far this year okay there's a lot of volatility but markets are a little bit ahead and um i i guess um what happens over the coming months will determine a lot of market performance from here but i, I mean i agree with you last friday night after the u.s non-farm payrolls i was watching the commentary coming out of the um, United States in relation to the economy. Um, I Granted, it was over a bottle of red wine, but um, we were, a, a lot of um, commentators in the US economy were basically coming out saying, recessionist, where is your recession now? Um, so there, there was a pretty upbeat assessment of that. And, you know, what you mentioned about the two big investment banks coming out with a more cautionary um, tale about what's going on um, is instructive in itself. But I agree with you. There is a huge level of confusion at the moment. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rustolium's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Can I quote another yeah. confusing statistic at you? You yes. know how I bang on and on and on about the deep hole that the UK economy is in? Yes. And the deep political hole that the UK is in and how it's a complete shit show over here from a whole host of perspectives. Guess which stock market today is at an all-time yes. high? 
the FTSE. Yes. Now that, is, is, that, is that because of preponderance of energy companies? It's partly that. The FTSE 100, which is that index that is at an all-time high today, isn't really an index of UK or companies exposed to the UK economy. It's got energy companies in it, which, of course, are the um, exposed, coming in with all of these amazing profit numbers. It's got mining companies. They tend to be international companies that have a listing in London rather than companies, domestic UK companies that uh, are exposed to the UK economy. The So that's one factor that they're reporting all these amazing profits. And one of the many things that's going on in the UK is that there's a controversy here about people being forced to uh, have something called prepayment meters for their electricity and gas for their domestic energy supplies and that their houses are almost being broken into by the energy companies to force them to have these so-called prepayment meters. You might remember in the old days, Jim, you, you might just be old enough to remember having to put a shilling in the meter um, for, for your energy. I think it's it's more electronic these days and, and debit or credit card driven. I don't think you're actually, I'm not sure actually, but I don't think you're being asked to put physical cash in. But because people aren't able to pay their energy bills, they're having to pay for them in advance. And the corresponding part of this, of course, is that the energy companies are making out like bandits. And that's whether or not this is the correct state of affairs. It certainly doesn't look right to me, but that is what is going on. Back to the stock market. The the other reason why I think the UK is flavor of the month is uh, in global equity market terms, non-US equities have been the flavor of the month this year amongst investors. So they've been looking for opportunities in the world to buy non-US stocks. They've been buying emerging markets, as I mentioned earlier on. And the UK, it's one of those financial market things, it's been out of fashion, really, for decades. And although it's at an all-time high, it's not much higher than it was 20, 25 years ago. So uh, it's, it's, it's nevertheless interesting to observe uh, the, the UK and its stock market going off in completely different directions. Yeah, it's funny, Chris, everybody I meet out and about in my travels, um, when the topic of our podcast comes up, um, references are always made to your extreme negativity about everything British at the moment, the political system, the economy, etc. And um, it, it's interesting, I was just reading a piece from Capital Economics in the UK today, uh, they have been calling for a UK recession now for some time, very, very, ner- very, very negative about the economy and indeed about the political system, very consistent with your own view of the world. But they were sort of saying today that, you know, the recession isn't quite happening yet, that the level of savings built up during the pandemic, the government handouts are actually keeping the economy above water at the moment. And of course, lower wholesale energy prices also contributing. But then they're coming out and saying, but down the road, you know, the impact of higher interest rates and higher energy prices relative to where they were a couple of years ago, you know, will increasingly impact on the economy. Um, and we, we mentioned in our last podcast about what the International Monetary Fund was saying, uh, the UK being the only G7 country expected to experience negative growth of 0.3% um, in 2023. So, there is a huge amount of confusion out there generally yeah. about what's happening in the real economy. But you look at what central bankers are doing with interest rates and you'd have to say the risks to growth are very real at the moment. Yeah. In my defense, Your Honor, 
uh, about being gloomy about the UK. Can I read something out to you? You're familiar with the Lex column of the Financial Times, very respectful. I sure am. Yeah. Piece of journalism. And there's a piece out uh, only today by somebody called Camilla Palladino. And she begins, dear reader, greetings from Milan. As a regular visitor to London, I have noticed how glum the mood has become. The strikes and shrinking economy are just a couple of reasons. The capital of Lombardy, Milan, has a much more buoyant vibe. One reason, Milan is the beneficiary of a post-Brexit banker bonanza. And she goes on about how much better Milan has become relative to London. And even compared to a few years ago, that was completely the other way around. Um, Milan was a dreary place for an expat Brit. There were no English book shops. There, were, there, were, there was nothing really to attract a Brit. And she goes on about how much more attractive Milan has become relative to London. And you'll get similar stories from Parisian bankers. You'll even get similar stories from Frankfurt bankers. So it's not just me who's noticed this. People are, have noticed, other than me, lots of people are saying similar things. And as this uh, journalist is saying, some people are voting with their feet. So I, I do think it is a real phenomena. But uh, um, if, if, you find, if you find me overdoing the gloom and doom, um, please, please let me know. And one way in which you can overdo the gloom is that I don't think it's sustainable for forecasters like the IMF to say that the world economy is in reasonable shape, as it did last week. Not great, but reasonable. If the, for, if the forecast revisions continue for the world economy, if the IMF next time it comes out puts their forecasts up again, you've got to remember that the UK is a small open economy and it is very much driven uh, in, in part by what happens in the world economy. And, and it, it could well be dragged away from that recession forecast if those forecast revisions for the likes of the states and Europe continue to edge upwards. The National Institute, another forecasting agency here in London, only today said that it thinks the UK economy will just about avoid recession this year. So even here in the UK, things are changing ever so slightly to be from the absolute doom and gloom to just gloom. Yeah, Chris, an interesting statistic that I think is going to be important. Uh, European natural gas prices a few minutes ago trading at 53 euro 40 cent per megawatt hour. Uh, last August, September, that was trading at about 345 euro per megawatt hour. So that is a dramatic uh, decline in natural gas prices. And you'd don't, have to say... Don't get me started, Jim, because okay. one of the things that we're being told now here in the UK, so you've just quoted, so um, we've fallen, I think, doing mental arithmetic there by about 80, 85%, something like mm. that. Wholesale prices mm. have fallen 80, 85%. We're being told today in the UK that come April, which is only the month after next, that our energy prices are going up again. Do you know by how much? 40%. On top of what we've already had, we're being, so I know that there are leads and lags in this system that the companies that might have bought at these high prices last summer have to recoup their costs and all that kind of nonsense. But please, give me a break. This is not a functioning energy market in any meaningful way, as far as I can see, that if there is no link, or at least no link that I can discern between energy prices um, and uh wholesale energy prices and what I am expected to pay come this April, uh, you know, God forbid. So, uh, I know the, the the energy expert that I spoke to, Ben Watts, on this podcast only last year will probably 
chip in with a comment here and explain it to me in rational arithmetic detail about why this is the case. But this stinks to me of regulatory capture. The, the energy market in this country, and indeed in many countries, is heavily regulated. And with all of these companies reporting all of these profits, and my energy bills are still going up. Give me a break, please. Chris, a, um, a regular listener from my part of the world um, texted me the other night saying that his 13-year-old son was really impressed with our cool and liberal use of the word bullshit. And um, I think what's happening on energy markets, you, you can apply that word bullshit to it again today, because when you see that sort of collapse and you see what you've described in the UK, but you also see what's happening, the profits of BP and Shell in recent days, you know, massive, massive growth and profits there, uh, that there is no doubt about it. And people will come back and try and explain the technical nature of energy markets, et cetera, et cetera, to us. But there is no doubt about it. There is a massive transfer of resources from consumers and businesses to energy companies at the moment. Um, and I don't think there's any other way you can argue um, against that. You can explain it with all sorts of um, market technicalities, but that is the reality of what's happening at the moment. And the global oil market is, is, is even murkier, because one of the things that's going on there, of course, is that uh, over the weekend, the, the European Union you guys uh, put a ban on refined products coming in from Russia, and that includes diesel. And you'll have noticed that the premium that diesel attracts over petrol has been creeping up in recent weeks, and this is one of the drivers of that. Uh, and the mystery is, though, that having tried to cap the price of oil, tried to ban Russian imports of oil, Russian oil revenues held up last year. Um, the uh, Russian oil volume of exports actually went up a couple of percentage points last year. Now, of course, they they were diverted. They didn't all come to the West in the way that they used to. And they've all gone to uh, China, India and Turkey. India last year increased its imports of oil from Russia by a factor of 16. And uh, so and then we end up con they, they refine it and send it to us. Um, or indeed just send it to us as, as, as another barrel of crude in a, in a, with a different label. So we're still, we're still consuming all this Russian stuff, but it, it's just uh, reaching us via a circuitous route. So it's, it's, it's very... And who is actually getting all of these extra revenues is also a bit murky. Because one of the things that, that you often see people like um, who are in favour of these sanctions on Russia saying is that we, we've capped the price we pay for Russian oil, so their revenues will... Uh, either have gone down or will go down. And just look, at the price. We, we always quote things like the Brent oil price or the West Texas oil price being about 80 bucks at the moment. And the Urals price, where, which is the Russian benchmark price, is well, well below that. Um, um, no, it isn't. If you actually go and dig and find out what, is, what India in particular is paying for Russian oil, it's not that far off the international benchmarks. That's according to The Economist anyway. And that there are a whole bunch of middlemen taking their cut here from this so-called Urals price, and that this money is uh, eventually Putin takes his cut from this as well. So it's as murky as hell. It's, it's become like the old arms market used to be, absolutely impenetrable. Chris, in the interest of time, um, I know we have got to get to chat GPT today and what's happening there. Um, I just want to mention a couple of things that I think are interesting at the moment. One was uh, late last week, we got the exchequer returns for January here, surplus of 2.8 billion 
at 600 million higher than the surplus in January 2022. Um, the t- taxation came in at 7.5 billion. That's 815 million or 12.2% up on January 22. Um, income tax at 2.8 billion up 240 million or 9.3%. And VAT, 3.7 billion collected, the largest tax heading up 575 million or 18.5%. Um, corporation tax in January is irrelevant because nothing very much comes in anyway. I think we collected 50 million. It's not a, a corporate tax paying month of the year. But the incredible tax revenue buoyancy that we spoke about. Uh, consistently during 2022, you know, has continued into the early weeks of 2023. That's good news. Um, I don't know, have you been observing what's happening in Brazil at the moment? Uh, President Lula is on the war path for lower interest rates, and he apparently now has the independence of the Brazilian Central Bank in his sights. Here we may be about to witness another example of how bad politics can do serious economic damage. A theme we have spoken to a lot, particularly in relation to Brexit and the United Kingdom. Um, Two significant speeches in the last 24 hours. Biden, last night, he stated the Union address. Um, He was looking for Republican support for policies aimed at reducing debt, aiding hardworking families, and to deal with the threat from China. Uh, the Republican Party um, responded quite negatively and bizarrely in many cases, as I think you're going to talk about. Um, and they accused Biden of obsessing over woke fantasies. Um, and that speech and the reaction to that speech just demonstrate clearly the very, very divided nature of the U.S. political system. You have been listening to Zelensky speaking to the U.K. House of Parliament today. Um, I haven't. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, before I go on to Zelensky, let me just give you my six months worth on the State of the Union speech. Listening to those Republicans shout and scream, uh, they were swearing. They were using expletives, as they say in the States. Uh, They called Biden a liar, and they used that woke terminology. There was a a spat between a senator and the new New York congressman who has lied all about his uh, CV, about being from Goldman Sachs and having gone to certain universities and his parents were escaped from the Holocaust and all of it has proven to be false. Nevertheless, the Republican Party still wants to keep him on as a congressman. And he had a spat with Mitt Romney. And Mitt Romney objected to this guy putting himself in pole position for the cameras and for shaking Joe Biden's hand. And it was captured on camera. And this guy tweeted afterwards in the most childish, infantile fashion, Romney, I'm, you know, you do realize that you're never going to be president. I mean, give me a break. I mean, it was just absurd. And interestingly, the New York Times today has reported all of this as saying that the uh, Congress is becoming like the British House of Commons, full of all of these insults and jeering in, in a way that it never has in the past. When somebody a few years ago shouted liar at Obama, the entire House came together to condemn somebody saying that on the floor of the House. And today, uh, everybody's saying what they said yesterday, Marjorie Taylor Greene's antics. Um, somebody, somebody carried a balloon around the floor. Can you believe this? to mark the uh, the appearance or disappearance of the Chinese, the Chinese 
Feather so the antics are, are just incredible. And one of the that New York Times comment about the uh, Congress morphing into something that resembles the British House of Commons is fascinating because I think that it's it's a two way street, but it's also the other way around. I think that what the Conservative Party, the Tories in the UK, are rapidly becoming or taking their role model for is the Republican Party in the states. The two parties are converging. In a, into a very similar anarchic state where reality is denied, facts are made up, behavior is bizarre, uh, lies are told all the time. Uh, to coin that phrase that you described earlier on, they're just full of bullshit. Liz Truss wrote a 4,000 word article in the Sunday Telegraph last weekend claiming that the uh, reason why she's no longer prime minister is that there was a socialist conspiracy against her. Now, that must mean, Jim, that the bond market, the government bond market, is part of a socialist conspiracy. You it's and I, a left-wing conspiracy, yeah. You and I have been in financial markets for many years. I haven't spotted many left-wingers in the government bond market, I must say, or indeed financial markets generally. So it's just, it's, it's beyond bizarre. It is just a continuation of this bullshit world that we're living in. And the grand old party, the GOP, the Republican Party, and the Tory party are basically coalescing into the same sticky, gooey mess that they both resemble. And that that's really all, all I've got for you um, on, on, on the politics is there's no, just no, no real words that can describe the, 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 the utterly, I mean, actually, do you remember Gubu? I certainly do. Remind me, it's grotesque, grotesque unique, unbelievable and, Bizarre. Grotesque, unique, bizarre and unprecedented. Yeah. Which for our British and other non-Irish listeners and Irish listeners of, who are younger than perhaps we are, that was designed by Charlie Hockey, was it? Charlie Hockey, yeah. Or certainly in the era of Charlie Hockey to describe... No, it was Hockey, yeah. To describe a certain series of political events in Ireland. And I think that probably fits more appropriately um, government politics in the UK and the United States today. That's, I'll leave it at that, Jim. I'll leave chat GPT-3 and all things artificial intelligence for a longer chat next time. I think we've run out of time today. Zelensky. Oh, Zelensky. Forgive me. Yes, of course. Yeah. I was just moved. He was, in, he was speaking in something called Westminster Hall. For people that don't know, and a lot of people in the UK don't understand the, the architecture of the Palace of Westminster, we often see the House of Commons. We occasionally see the House of Lords on our TV screens. Those two chambers are, are actually in British historical terms, quite young. They're, they're about 200 years old. The Westminster Hall, where he spoke today, where kings and queens lie in state, where Charles the something or other had his trial, um, is, I think, over a 1,000 years old. It is an extraordinary uh, edifice. And he was speaking with a stained glass window behind him and on one of those lovely London days where the sun was just streaming in. And, you know, I don't want to big it up for more than it was, but it was actually quite moving. And everybody was there. The place was absolutely packed. Every politician that you could possibly think of, and some of them that you probably never even thought of, um, was there. It was respectful. There, he, he, people were, unlike Washington, D.C. yesterday, people were silent during his speech. And, you know, he was roundly applauded. And so I think it was quite moving. One of the things that I hope our regular listeners don't ever listen to is Russian state television, their current affairs, pro nightly current affairs programs. 
And there's a great service provided by somebody called Julia Davis of BuzzFeed News, in which she translates the nightly current affairs programs on Russian state television. And they go off on one in all sorts of different directions in fairly predictable ways. But one of the scary things they often do is that they call explicitly and loudly in a table-thumping way for London, Berlin and Washington, D.C. to be nuked. Um, when they see what Zelensky was up to in London today, God knows what they're going to say tonight. Um, you'd need a strong stomach, I suspect, to listen to it or to read the translation. Right, Chris, thank you very much for that. Uh, great to talk again. Um, I promise and I pledge that the beginning of our next podcast in a couple of days' time will be looking at ChatGPT, uh, Microsoft's enhanced AI offering and Google's Bard. Yeah, one I of the promise. good things about uh, yeah. delaying this, Jim, is that each time we do delay it, something happens. Something else comes along to, to talk about it. So, uh, And I suspect that's going to be the case for a long period of time, is that I won't just be talking about it once. But there is an awful lot to talk about, and I think it's Super. Very, very exciting. So we'll try that next time. Yeah, talk Just to you. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms.